Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, open up to James chapter 1. We have been going through James for the last couple weeks. Now, I have a minor confession to make, not major, minor. Uh, I have always been probably overly concerned with my appearance, with kind of the way that I, I look, uh, the way that I dress, hair, those kinds of things. I mean, not, uh, it's probably not unusual. I think there's probably lots of us who this morning would say, you know, could raise our hand and say, yeah, that's, that's probably, uh, I'm, I'm in that boat as well. But at least for me, one of the issues is that um, for being concerned about my appearance, the evidence for my life doesn't always match up with that concern. So I brought along a, a little bit of photographic evidence here uh, to kind of test this. So this is, uh, this is me with my siblings. I'm about age 13. And um, in the back there, and, and I, there's the, the whole issue of the turtleneck and the sweater. But I think I'm slightly more concerned about how the glasses are at least half the size of my head. <laughs> why I thought that was a good fashion decision, why my parents let me do that, I don't know. Not, so that's a bit of a fail. Um, move on a couple years, then this is uh, on the way to prom at my senior year. And, uh, you know, the tux itself, I think, is fine. It's classic. It's from the neck up that we have problems. <laughs> so again, there's the, the glasses, there's the, the expression on my face, which I, even now I can't plumb the depths of what was going on there. But it's the hair in particular. I had long hair at the time, which... I enjoyed, I, I've had uh, long hair and a ponytail at different points in my life, but why I thought that slicking it back would be the appropriate thing to do on prom night eludes me. So um, then an, a year or so later, there is, um, uh, the tie is interesting, the purple with the white orchids, but it's the fact that I think after I retired that shirt, it was used as a sail for a sailboat uh, <laughs> in terms of the amount of material that was there. For some reason that was, at that point, we thought, you know, baggy was good, and so that shirt reflects that. And then uh, a couple years later, you've got the fact that <laughs> evidently I raided my grandmother's living room and took her curtains from the 70s <laughs> and had them made into a shirt. And uh, it's funny how the last, that picture and the one before are both of dancing. I, I very rarely dance in my life, and I'm reminded now why when it appears that that's how I think I should dress. So please take that picture down. Let's go on. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Ritual humiliation for the sake of a sermon. Um, two things stand out to me as I, as I look back and kind of reviewed photographs for that. One is that um, I have questionable fashion taste and shouldn't be trusted. Um, but second is that fashion comes and goes. And that what is considered great and in style at, at one point, you know, a little bit down the road, you know, people look on it as a hideous abomination. And believe it or not, at least some of those things probably were in style at the time. And the reality is that fashion, it's ephemeral. It doesn't stay with us. It does. It comes and goes. And, and that's fine. To build your closet on fashion and its kind of changes and, and, and the vagaries of that, that's fine. But it's another thing to build your life on something that is so changeable, that passes away so quickly. And we recognize that. And so when it comes to big decisions in life, we think, you know, we need to base that on something that's more solid. 
something that doesn't come and go like that, things that are more enduring. And so for some of us, we make decisions and we say, you know what, the standard, the guide for my life is going to be uh, education. And I'm going to, to do all of the work that I can, study as hard as I can, to, to do well in school, to get the degrees that will make a difference for me in life, that will chart out the course for the life that I want. For some of us, it's relationships. And it's trying to be the best friend, the best spouse, the best son or daughter that we can be. And we think that if we put all that we can into relationships, that that will be something that is solid, that doesn't come and go. And then for some of us, it's the question of of money and possessions. And certainly that's a huge cultural narrative for us here in America in this day and age, that we define ourselves on what we have or on what we don't have. And we think that if we have enough, if we have the right amount of money and possessions, then, well, then we know who we are and our identity is secure and the, char- the course that we want to chart in life is set out on the right path. And so the reality is that the way our world keeps score is that if you have a lot, then you are at the top. And if you don't have much, well, you're down at the bottom. You're low. That if you don't have much, well, it constricts. It, it puts you into a small window of, of what life can actually look like. And so it, it constricts where you can live and the kind of place that you can uh, rent or buy. And that in turn has a, a constricting effect on education and how good the schools are where you live. And it constricts your opportunities when it comes to health care. All sorts of things. The, the story of how our world keeps scores is if you don't have money, well, you're low. You're at the bottom. And the flip side is true that the way we keep score is to say that if you have a lot well, then you are at the top, and you have access, and you have opportunity, and the world is open before you as an endless horizon. What you have, well, that, that seems more stable. That seems like it's a, it's a reliable guide for what life should look like. But what does God say? Is that the way that God keeps score and rates whether people are low or high? Let's see what James says this morning. So James chapter 1, starting there in verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. God keeps score in the opposite way that we do. God seems to say that his way of looking at things is upside down from the way we do. There's this paradox, there's this kind of reversal that, frankly, to our ears, well, it sounds weird. It's out of sync with the way that we operate, with the way the world keeps score. To say that if you're a believer and you're in humble circumstances, if you are low, if you are poor, well, actually, you should be able to take pride in your high position? 
There's nothing about the way that your life looks to the world that says you have a high position. Why should you be taking pride in, in that? But the way that God looks at it isn't the same. And the way that God sees things, well, it's not exactly the same way the world does. And so, in God's eyes, if you are a believer, well, then it means that you actually have untold blessings that are yours. And in fact, if you are poor, well, that's not the way that God keeps score. Because he says in the next chapter, in in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? He says, if you are poor and of no account by the world's standards because you have so little, actually you are rich, you have faith, and actually you're an heir. You may think nobody's left you anything, you're all alone on on your own, but God says, no, 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 you are my heir for the kingdom. That if you are low, God says, don't think about what you don't have, instead think about, in fact, take joy and pride and boast in your high position. And the opposite is true as well, that God speaks in verse 10 to rich believers, and he says, the measure that you should be thinking by is not based on your bank account, it's actually based, again, on what I'm doing. The NRSV, I think, captures the reversal here well, so it says, let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low. That to be a believer, well, there's a way in which that we should see it as something that you're brought low, that you're of no account by the way the world keeps score and judges things. And now that's not true in every day and every place, there are sometimes seasons and, and certain places where to be a believer actually is, is esteemed more widely. But by and large, by and large, if you follow Christ and if you're serious about it, well, it's the kind of thing that puts you on the outside. That it means that you're on the margins, that you actually do have a low place in the way the world keeps score. And that goes all the way back to Jesus. So Hebrews describes Jesus and it says that he went outside the city gates. When he died, when he was crucified, when he suffered his death, it happened outside of the city walls. And the city walls represented security, safety, status. If you were in the city, you were somebody, you mattered, you had status. To die outside the walls, that's to be low. And we're told that what we have to do is to follow Jesus outside those walls and bear the disgrace that he bore. So James is saying, if you are a believer, if you are rich, that's not the way you should be keeping score. You should be keeping score based on your disgrace, based on your humiliation, based on the fact that you have a low position. The context that James is talking about this, the reason he brings this up is because he's thinking about our trials. That what we've seen to this point in James is that he's concerned with when suffering, when hardships come, well, how will that test your faith? 
how you will respond in your relationship with God. And the first kind of, the, in some ways, the paradigm, the big test case that he brings up is right here in these verses. It's the question of what you have and what you don't have. And James is saying that whether you are poor or whether you are rich, there is a way that that will test your faith. That will be a challenge to how you're going to relate to God. It has the potential to throw up obstacles or roadblocks in your ability to have a relationship with God. Now, if you're poor, well, intuitively we can see that because in our eyes, the world's eyes, to be poor is a hardship. It is to suffer. And so that makes sense. One of the ways that the Bible talks about uh, the challenge there is that we may become anxious, we may become desperate, and we may then do things that are outside what God has. So in Proverbs, the, uh, the sage, he asks, he says, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. And then the reason he says, please, I, I, not poverty, is because I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. He's concerned, he says, please, if I am poor, I, I don't trust myself. I, I know that it might lead me into sin that the way that I res would respond to that test, well, it might not be the right way. And so there's a way in which when you don't have, it can provoke anxiety. And the challenge in your faith is to say, am I going to continue to hold on to Christ? Am I going to trust that he actually is worth everything? Am I going to believe that God says, I will provide for you? So being poor, having nothing is a test for your faith. By the same token, the Bible is saying, James is saying, being rich is a test for your faith. Now that's a little bit counterintuitive for us. So we recognize that there are problems that come from being rich, but we usually think, well, those are the kind of problems we'd like to have. Those problems are, well, they're not as bad. But the Bible actually, well, it sees things differently. And that God says, actually, it is probably a bigger test to be rich than it is to be poor. It is more a challenge to your faith if you have a lot than if you have a little. So one of the ways it's a challenge, the Bible says, is that we may be tempted to rely upon ourselves. That when we have everything that we think we need for day-to-day -day life and even for something more than that, well, then we're tempted to not need God. And so when the Israelites were ready to go into the promised land, God warned them of this very thing. In Deuteronomy, he says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses that you, filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied... And God is happy for, for them to eat and to be satisfied. But he says, be careful. Do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That when I provide these things for you, you will be tempted to forget me, he says. Be on your guard when you are satisfied, when you have what you need, when you have plenty, you might forget me. Another way that to be rich is a test is that, well, we get distracted. 
there are so many things to pay attention to. It's about protecting what we have. It's about growing what we have. It's about making sure that nobody takes away what we have. And so Jesus tells a parable in Mark 4 about the farmer, how he goes out to his field and how he sows the seed. And one of the types of plants begins to grow, but the problem is that the thorns choke it out before it can become fruitful, before it can actually mature and become a plant like it's supposed to be. And Jesus says those thorns, well, they're the worries of this life. They're the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. That another way that what you have can be a test of your faith is that it chokes your faith out. And so one of the things to take away is to say that whether you have a little or you have a lot, there's a challenge there. There's a test for your faith of how you're going to relate and hold on and believe and trust in Christ, whether you have a little or a lot. Now, James is going to come back to this, and, and by and large, James is going to spend a lot more time on the challenge of having a lot, that the, the trial that riches may and the ways that they may tempt us away from God, James is going to circle back to that. And it's important to keep that in mind because the reality is that, by and large, that we this morning in this room, we are on the rich side of the equation. That we're the ones, very few of us are probably the ones who, who don't have a lot, that we actually have plenty. And, and that's true, especially when you think in terms of the big picture. So a story I saw recently made the comparison and basically said that the poorest people in America, the poorest kind of bottom 5% category in America, is richer than 70% of the rest of the world. There are 70% of people who have a lower standard of living and a harder life financially than the poorest people in America. And in fact, it was very striking, the richest people in India are equivalent to the poorest people in America. So when we think about this, James is speaking to, to us no matter where we are, but let's make sure that we don't kid ourselves. Today and as we go on, it's a little bit more about the rich than it is about the poor for most of us. Now, how is it that God sees it like this? How is it that God is able to say the way he keeps score actually, well, it doesn't have a bearing in the first instance on what we have or what we don't have. And in fact, the way God keeps score, it turns things upside down. It's the paradox. It's the reversal of the way that the world keeps score. How is it that God is justified in saying that? It's because when God looks at it, he doesn't see things in a small frame. He sees them in the big picture. And so when James goes on in verse 10, he says, Why is it that the rich should take pride in their humiliation? He says, since they will pass away like a wildflower. And then he uses this imagery, he says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. He says, think about how beautiful that flower is, and yet its beauty doesn't last. The sun, the drought, the heat, well, it takes away all that was valuable about that plant, and that plant withers and it dies. And God says, you need to have that big perspective that things will pass away. That what you think will endure, riches, education, relationships, all the things in this world that you think you can build your life upon, 
they will pass away. They cannot bear that weight. They're not nearly so solid and stable as we seem to think in terms of the way the world keeps score. That these things do not last. And what God is doing is he's saying, don't look in the small picture, take the big picture. One of the the most photographed kind of iconic presidents was John F. Kennedy. And uh, because of his youth and because of the glamour, he and his wife Jacqueline, that there are so many pictures that resonate for us that still today that you will see in a magazine or, or in other places. And the photographer who took nearly all of those was a guy called Jacques Lowe. Starting in the mid-50s, he became the official photographer for the Kennedys. And over the course of the the presidency and before that, he took nearly 40,000 photographs of the president and his family. And, And Lowe treated those pictures like the treasure that they were. In fact, a couple of times he tried to take on an insurance policy. No company would insure them because they said, we can't calculate how valuable those really are. In the late 60s, he moved over to Europe for a while. And he didn't pack the negatives and put them on the ship. He didn't even put them in his suitcase down in the cargo hold. He bought an extra seat and set them right next to him on the airplane. And long term... He didn't trust keeping them in his house, but he did the next best thing. He kept them around the corner in a fireproof steel bank vault, J.P. Morgan. And whenever a a newspaper or a museum would want one of those photographs, he personally himself would go to the bank, get the negative out, and then take it to be developed, and then be the one who took it back. He treated it like the treasure that it really was. The address of that bank was five World Trade Center. And on September 11th, when the trade towers fell, the contents of all of those bank vaults was destroyed. All 40,000 of those negatives burned up. They passed away. They didn't last. Don't be deceived. All of the things that we have are like that. They will all pass away. Whether it happens now in a dramatic way like that or it happens in the bigger picture, none of it will last. And God says you have got to see reality the way it really is. Do not not look at it in a small frame. Step back and see the big picture. Because when we see the big picture, we recognize that while it's turning the way we see upside down, it actually means that it's right side up. That when we have God's perspective, because he's the creator of reality, there is no my reality, there is God's reality, and the question is, am I going to line up with it? And when we step and we see the whole frame, then we look and we see things the way that God does. And we see how valuable or how lasting either our poverty or our riches are. A couple weeks ago, Dave talked about the window that you have. And do you have a big enough window? Does it go from the ceiling, all the floor, all the way to the ceiling? Do you see reality the way it really is? Because God says, when you do, you will realize that your boasting, well, it should have nothing to do with what you have or what you don't have. It should have to do with me. 
that what counts is how you relate to me. So in Jeremiah, the prophet, he says, let not the rich boast in their riches. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. Let not the strong boast of their strength. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight. God says you have riches, you have strength, you have wealth, you have wisdom. Great, but don't rely on those. Don't boast in those. Don't make that the measure of your reality. Instead, know me. Know who I am. Know my character. Know who I am, and therefore that's why you should boast. That is what reality is about. Step back and make sure that you see the big picture. Well, how do we do that? How do we make sure that, that our view of reality is reality? How do we learn not to keep score the way the world keeps score? Well, one of the things, when we don't know something and somebody tells us something that's true, that we can respond, we can say, well, I'll take your word for it. It's a way of saying that knowledge, in large part, our knowledge is testimony. It's based on what somebody else has told us. So I've never seen the existence of, of atoms. I don't know personally if that's true, but, but I take people's word for it. And that's the way a lot of our knowledge works. When Aaron and I first moved overseas, uh, we were, you know, it's a, it's a huge transition point. You, you feel vulnerable, you, you feel entirely plucked out of your normal life and friendships and just the day-to-day, -day, knowing how to go to the grocery store and what you want to buy, all of those things are kind of pulled out from underneath you. And it's an unsettling uh, existence until you can make that transition. And when we were first in England, we had a couple weeks of kind of getting settled in, buying a car, learning our way around before I began school and before Aaron began work. And we ended up having a, a day or two there of free time. And I thought one of the great things that we could do was let's go and enjoy the fact that we actually live now somewhere new. Let's go into London for the day. Now, I had lived overseas before, and so I had a kind of familiarity, and, and I love to, to, to travel and to sightsee. And I'm kind of one of those obsessive people who gets the guidebook and goes through it kind of carefully and, and plots out exactly what we're going to do and, and when and, and which train and which tram and, and, and bus and all of that kind of thing. And Aaron was happy to, to defer to me, happy to take me at my word and, and make me the tour guide for the day. So she and I and her brother spent the day in London and kind of walked around and saw the sights. And then at dinner time. We had picked out, I had picked out a, a restaurant for us, and it had to fit in certain parameters because, again, we wanted to experience London, but we also felt really poor at the time. The, the exchange rate from dollar to pound is, is pretty uh, harsh when you first experience it, and, and we didn't know what it would be like paying for school and, and cost of living. So I had, I had done the research and found the Eagle Pub. It sounded historic. It sounded kind of, you know, very English. And so I said, here's where it is. We're gonna, this is where we're going to go. And they said... That sounds good. Yeah, we'll take your word for it. So we, we set out. Now, there are, depending on who you ask of this story, there are varying um, accounts of how far we walked at that point. <laughs> I looked at the map again recently, and I calculated about two miles. My wife remembers three to four. My brother-in-law remembers seven to eight. 
I don't know whose word you want to take for that bit of the story, but uh, the problem was that, that we kept going, and, and I kept thinking, okay, it's just around the corner. Okay, we go around that corner. Okay, it wasn't there. All right, whoa, I must I get the map out, coordinating the guidebook map with our map and, and uh, before kind of smartphones and GPS. And, and so, oh, no, no, I think it's just, oh, okay, I messed up. Yeah, it's right, just around this corner. Okay, well, I'll take your word for it. And we, no, it's not there. Uh, we walked uh, for a significant amount of time and distance, and the longer we go, the, the more tense things become, and, and the more determined I am that we're going to find this stupid pub, <laughs> and yet we never did. We ended up having dinner in some nondescript Italian restaurant that night, um, <laughs> and I don't know whether that was one of the greatest or worst meals in terms of my experience. I didn't turn out to be a very good tour guide. Taking my word for it proved to be an exercise in futility. It took me a while to rebuild trust. So the question is, when it comes to, to life and reality, who should be your tour guide? Whose word will you take for it when it comes to how to live? And the interesting thing about what James says in verses 10 and 11, when he talks about that imagery of the flower and it fading away. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. He's actually making a reference to a passage in Isaiah 40. And what's, what I want to note about that is that he's quoting not just from the immediate context, but, not just the immediate verses, but he's thinking of the context. And that's often the way when the New Testament authors use Old Testament scripture and they're referring to it, they mean us to reflect on the wider context. So in Isaiah, he says, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall. If James is thinking about just riches, Isaiah is saying everything is like that. Nothing will endure. Nothing that is human, that is of this world, will last. But there's one thing that does. And Isaiah goes on to say, but the word of our God endures forever. And James has got that in mind. James refers to the word implanted in you, the word able to save, as he goes on in chapter 1. And so the question is, whose word are you going to take for it? When it comes to reality, when it comes to life, whose word are you going to take for it? Who is going to be your tour guide? And God says, take my word for it. Believe me when I describe reality. Take me as your trustworthy tour guide. And that when we begin to say, right God, I'll take your word for it, and we say, we look through God's word to understand reality, then we see that God actually says a lot of things that are highly relevant to this whole question of how do we think about our riches, how do we think about our poverty, how is that a test for us to relate to him. So one of the things that God says in Ephesians, whether you're rich or you're poor, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, he says that you have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is nothing that is a blessing from God that isn't yours. There is no spiritual blessing of forgiveness, of redemption, of reconciliation, of adoption as his children. He says, all of that belongs to you in Christ. And that 
That's reality. That's the way to see life. He says, take me at my word and see through what I say for looking at your life. He says, how should you think about your riches? Well, Job is a good guy. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That whatever you have, it's from God. And that when you come in and when you leave, it's with nothing. Those things pass away. They're not solid. And in fact, it's not just your riches. God says, it's all of this world. In 1 Corinthians, he says, this world in its current form is passing away. Your riches, your poverty, your education, all of those things, they're passing away. Look and see reality as I see it, God says. Look through my word. And when you do, he says, here's how you should then think about your riches. 1 Timothy 6, it says, do good with it. Be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. Because in this way, you will lay up treasure for yourself as a firm foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. God says you want life. Don't look at it in a small frame. Look and see reality in the big picture the way I do. Turn it upside down so that it's right side up. And when you do, you will see that it's the life to come to take hold of, that that's what's truly life. And the, the only way that this reversal is plausible, the only way that this reversal makes sense, and it's actually something that we would want, is because that Jesus has already gone and experienced this reversal himself. That word in James 1.10, when it says that the rich believers should take pride in their humiliation, well, that word shows up in a very interesting place in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a description of the servant. And it's the servant who's a rather enigmatic figure who is on the outskirts, who is despised, who's rejected, who has nothing beautiful to look at. And he's the one who suffers and is beaten and is pierced for our transgressions, the one who is crushed for our sin. And all of that is described in Isaiah as his humiliation. The reason that you should be able to look and see yourself the way God sees it is because Jesus has already gone through that humiliation and Jesus has been raised up to that highest place. And that he has gone before you, he has gone before me, and he has made it possible for us to have that life that's truly life, to hold on to that reversal, to see things right side up, because he's the one who's gone through the upside down and turned it over. And so the, the reason this morning that it's worth it, it's worth seeing reality as God sees it, is because Jesus is gone and he's experienced that reality, and he has opened up that opportunity for us not to hold on to the things that we have as if that's where life is, but to hold on to him and to know the disgrace, but also the high position that he himself has experienced and has. Let's pray. Father, 
we confess that this is not the day-to-day way we see the world. This is not how we experience it. So would you please open our eyes to see Jesus, to see that he has been humbled so that he would be lifted up, humbled so that we wouldn't have to experience that death ourselves, but instead in him we experience his death and his life. Would you give us reality? Would you help us to see through your word what is true? And then give us the faith to live. It's in your son's name we ask. Amen.